0: Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I'm here as usual with Stephanie Carvin once again in the observation room at the University of Ottawa courtroom. And today, Stephanie, we have a guest.
1: Yes, we're speaking with Sophie Beecher, who is the Director of Intelligence Policy at the National Security Policy Directorate at Public Safety Canada.
0: Well, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, today, we, one of the things that's happened since we were last here, which seems almost like a week ago,
1: it's, uh, strangely,
0: uh, is uh, C-59 has picked up a little bit of steam in the Senate. We've had now the first set of hearings, which Stephanie attended, involving uh, ministerial officials. And now we have the first round of non-government uh, witnesses who will be appearing on the uh, Monday, the 29th. Uh, and one of the issues that we haven't really returned to in, in sort of the second round of conversations on this podcast about Bill C-59 is information sharing. And so, in the present architecture, we've got the Security of Canada Information Sharing Act, the SCISA. I prefer uh, we SCISA. 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 We, we, have, uh, we have debates about how to pronounce yeah, acronyms. We right? call it SCISA. SCISA, yes. okay. Yes. <laughs> I win. Um, which I prefer because it sounds like something you do on snow. So, uh, the. Uh, the <laughs> <laughs> Sorry goodness. Stephanie it's a bit uh, of an inside joke too soon too soon uh, the glaciers finally gone from my front lawn actually this week Great. Um, Good. So, so you know the original architecture really dates from c51 and was designed really f- for a particular purpose and I, I wanted I thought we could talk about why it was introduced in 2015 because it was actually probably I would say the most controversial aspect of Bill C51 at the time uh, It's now being renovated in c59 and so i thought we'd have a chance to talk a little bit about those renovations and then the further renovation that really happened at the commons level in the commons committee which included a little bit more architecture and then i thought we would talk a little bit about you and your career because uh, you've you straddled the two domains of this podcast that is you started in law and you went to policy i, I really don't understand why anyone would do that but anyway um, uh, so <laughs> this is this, this is an opportunity for those of uh, our many listeners who are interested in career development in the space to, to talk about that trajectory So, Stephanie, why don't we start with the policy side?
1: Sure. Um, Do you want to maybe talk about some of the issues with regards to information sharing in government?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the conversation around information sharing started really with our American friends. As you all know, 9-11 was studied extensively, and we've heard all about how the the events were not picked up because of a failure to uh, merge information across government departments in the U.S., and that's partially helped reshape their entire national security apparatus. Canada, having not lived through the same events, uh, learned vicariously, I would say, from that experience. We might have been a little bit slow on the uptake, but I think C51 gave us an opportunity to introduce something that we thought would address some of the gaps that we have in our own legal architecture uh, for information sharing. And I want to specify right off the bat that This part of, well, C51 initially, is really about domestic information sharing between government of Canada institutions.
0: Yeah, so it's strictly federal. International information sharing would be governed by other expectations, so that would include the ministerial directions on information sharing in circumstances where it might give rise to mistreatment. So that's not really the space we're talking about today. We're talking about a, a very different space.
2: That's right, and we're not also talking about info sharing with uh, the private sector or with provinces. Right. So that's all separate.
0: Okay. So you've got all these federal government agencies who have historically been sharing information, uh, and so presumably there, there has been some law and legal architecture out there that allows that. So the CSIS and RCMP, for example, and, and, and listeners, this is the point which listeners probably expect me to talk about intelligence to evidence. I'm not going to talk about that, although it might be temporary Wait, at some what? point. Wait, uh, what? But, but, you know, what the about RCMP all the people
1: trying to drink or play the, <laughs> play the drinking game at home, Craig? It's,
0: it's not the long weekend yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, so th- the issue there, of course, is that those institutions have shared. Uh, certainly the RCMP sends a lot of information to CSIS. And so presumably there have been rules that have allowed information sharing even prior to the 2015 changes. And so how has that worked?
2: Yeah. So there is a bit of a patchwork of authorities Mm. in law to uh, help with disclosure of information between government institutions. But they're all very different. So CSIS, their authorities are mostly codified in their act. The RCMP uses the common law quite a bit as does the Department of National Defense. CBSA, some of it is implicit, but then they have very explicit prohibitions on disclosure of information. Immigration, same thing. And of course, as you know, information sharing, as long as it's not prohibited in law and does not contravene the charter, can be done just as a normal course of business for for government institutions you don't n- always need an explicit authority to disclose information
1: and so if, what you're saying is that all those departments have different authorities in the way they actually do that exchange of information So, when you say common law you mean that there's just kind of principles that are there as opposed to kind of like say uh, explicit statutory authority
2: yeah exactly so it's always been recognized for example that when you engage in law enforcement information sharing is part of that grouping of activities and that's all or mostly governed by the by the common law but these were very much laws that were enacted in different eras and for different reasons and to govern very specific types of information and they didn't necessarily all work together Mm -hmm. and so an officer in an in an agency sometimes has to consult their legal service unit or go through sort of standard operating procedures that are thick as a dictionary to figure out under which statute he should or shouldn't be disclosing information. And so what we did not have in the federal government was that one authority that everybody could rely upon for national security purposes. And that was the purpose behind SKIZA.
0: And so of course in the mix there also is the privacy act which yes. would extend and apply to federal government agencies which set certain standards on uh, collection retention use and including sharing of personal information which is not all information but certainly information about identifiable in- individuals which would be the most sensitive
2: Absolutely, sorts of yeah.
0: information and so generally the Privacy Act would tend to protect and limit uh, sharing, but it has exceptions, right? There are circumstances when where, where you can share under the Privacy Act.
2: Yes, and two notable ones would be if another statutory instrument more specifically authorizes you to go ahead and disclose information.
0: Sort of an override of the Privacy Act. Right?
2: Exactly. Or if you're doing so for a consistent purpose as the purpose of collection. And so for national security, the issue is that we didn't always have that existing statutory authority nor were we always disclosing for a consistent purpose. And and SCISA allows institutions that collect information for a non-national security purpose. So Agriculture Canada, for example, or CFIA or Environment Canada, if they collect information that was not originally for NS purposes, but sort of detect NS nexus or start wondering whether there's not something there that could be of interest to a national security institution. Can go and use SCISA to disclose for a national security purpose. Mm. So,
0: one of the I drew inferences from the debate around C fifty one is to the sort of scenarios that people were really worried about. Because another aspect of the Privacy Act is there is there an exception for lawful investigations. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's structured in a way that suggests that you have to have already started the lawful investigation and then as the, as the law enforcement or intelligence agency make the request of the in- entity that has the in- information. And so it's very hard there there to seed an investigation that hasn't already started. That's right. Uh, and, and, and as I understand it also there were uh, departments of, in the Government of Canada that interpreted the rules under the Privacy Act very differently. Some m- stricter, some less strict. And so for some reason, the scenario that people were painting during the debates on C51, and I don't know if you can comment on this, were passports stolen in North Africa And could you please provide us with a list? Because obviously that might be of some concern in relation to, say, foreign fighters or the like. And that Passport Canada, finding a way to get that information at Passport Canada would be very difficult because it's it's not consistent use necessarily. That information is in Passport Canada's uh, purview, but not necessarily consistent use basis to share to intelligence agencies. And so how do you get it uh, into the hands of the intelligence agencies so that they can then pull the data and do analysis on it?
2: Yeah. And I mean, as you mentioned, when an investigation has begun, Agencies often have the powers that they need to conduct and further that investigation, but it's before that investigation is triggered for detection purposes or prevention purposes. covers covers it all. I wanted to add also, because we talked about the the policy beginnings, you know, behind SCISA and I talked about the US context. I should mention the Canadian context as well, because we do have we do have a Canadian context and you've covered this extensively already. But two things I would say triggered the reflection more precisely for Canada. Number one, the the Commission of Inquiry into the Air India bombings, uh, even though those those events were prior to 9-11, detected some significant gaps in information sharing mm-hmm. at the time of those incidents. But in furtherance of, of of that debate, the Auditor General of Canada conducted two studies. I think in 2004 and 2009. At the time, she even did a sort of follow up on her 2004 because what she found was not entirely to her liking on the absence of consistent legal authorities for information sharing. And she also found that we had a culture of silos inside the federal government that was very reminiscent of the 19, I guess 70s, 1980s, where we built our laws to protect privacy first and foremost without necessarily thinking of the future where certain purposes such as national security would sort of take the front stage and justify the disclosure of information in some very limited circumstances
0: right and so and so in the air india context one of the recommendations of justice major in the report was that there should actually be compulsory information sharing in this case, from CSIS to uh, RCMP, which was uh, his recommendation to deal with intelligence to evidence. I think we've moved along in that conversation a little bit. But just to be clear, the mm-hmm. Skiza doesn't compel information sharing. It just uh, allows it to take place.
2: That's right. It doesn't compel disclosure. What it does, we we believe, is it puts everything in place so that if you want or need to share information. The, the tools are there. So you have the lawful authority, you have the principles, and with all of that, of course, we build toolkits and, and training to help federal institutions apply the law. But the reason that we chose not to go with compelling disclosure is that the holder of information is ultimately responsible for the consequences of disclosure. And if something happens based on that information, they will be accountable or liable even for the disclosure. And therefore, we thought it was extremely important to maintain the the discretion to disclose or not, keep it with the originating institution, just as we would expect for international info sharing, for example, or, or with the provinces. So the real trick there, not to get to full com- compelability, but to really encourage disclosure when necessary or desired, is to change the culture within our agencies and, and other federal institutions where the, the knee-jerk reaction previously might have been to not disclose in fear of the consequences or a reprimand or you know even personal uh, responsibility for having done so, mm. but to bring people to ask themselves whether disclosure should occur or not. We're not saying automatically disclose, but certainly you should ask yourself that question, especially if you detect a link with another institution's mandate.
0: Okay. And so so the other context in which this arises, of course, is the uh, RAR Commission inquiry, although, of course, that was international information sharing, but Mm -hmm. it raised legitimate concerns about low-quality information being shared uh, without adequate caveats uh, or evaluation as to the caliber of that information. And so one concern is if you broaden the aperture of information sharing, and so it's now a data dump, it's raw information, and there's some risk that it could be well, misconstrued, misused, uh, not uh, kept in a, an appropriate manner. Uh, and so one of the considerations, pro- setting aside sort of the privacy issue, has got to be mm, how is it going to be used and is it going to be used in a, in a manner that uh, is uh, proper? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and what sort of safeguards exist to guarantee that the information is of sufficient caliber before it's shared?
2: Yeah, that's something that we added in the C-59 context is specifically going to that we added a, an obligation to give a statement on the accuracy and reliability of the information along with the information. So we're not asking the disclosing party to a state whether the information is reliable or not, accurate or not, but at least give all the information they possibly can so that accuracy and reliability can be assessed. And it's important to say, even if you are disclosing the information, be careful, we're not 100% sure of the accuracy of this information because it was collected from this source and in the past that source has been accurate in some cases but not always, for example. So that is a new, a new safeguard that we've introduced. But previously, I mean Skiza tried to lay out some general principles as well, at the beginning of the statute and one of those is you should absolutely make use of caveats okay. uh, when appropriate. And-
0: Do you want to explain what caveats are?
2: Yeah, caveats are usually a set of conditions under which information disclosed can be used further disclosed or safeguarded disposed of retained destroyed etc and it is standard practice for national security agencies they've always done that uh, anytime for example the rcmp shares information they have their sort of their standard language which they can also modify as needed and it is uh, it is understood internationally but amongst Canadian partners that you you cannot disregard a caveat that's attached information so that's the condition under which you receive the information and you undertake to respect it, essentially. And so we we encourage the use of caveats between our federal institutions. Another principle was if you're going to be disclosing information to the same institution repeatedly, maybe you want to look into entering into a memorandum of understanding, uh, which is a big mystery to people who don't work <laughs> inside governments. But essentially, um, MOU is uh, a method of establishing conditions between two federal institutions who are legally part of the same party as the crown. Uh, you can't enter into a binding contract with another part of yourself, but the MOU is used in the U. So,
0: so why don't we talk about some of the operative provisions of the of the SKIZA as it now exists before we talk about some of the amendments. And so you know the most important provision, there are two provisions that are really really important. The first is what's national security for purposes of this information sharing? Because everything, everything turns on that definition, right? So when is my income tax information going to go to CSIS? Uh, And that's going to matter to a lot of people. And the second is, well, what's the actual protocol or, or expectation around when the sharing entity can pull the trigger and actually provide that information, say, to CSIS? And so definition and Operative Provision and Section 5 were both contentious issues in the C-51 debate. So the definition is really sweeping, right? And, and it's more sweeping than the definition of threats to the security of Canada and, and the CSIS Act. It's probably the most sweeping effort to define national security that exists in the statute book. Yes. And that's intentional. It is. And, and so why?
2: Because, and this is where it gets complicated, but the definition in SCISA is often compared to the one in CSIS. But we have to remember that that definition defines CSIS's mandate. Mm -hmm. National security is much broader than CSIS. It's a large chunk of it is CSIS, but many, many parts of a government are ultimately responsible for participating in maintaining national security. And we wanted to capture those other institutions mandates. And so we had to figure out a way without defining national security for federal statutes writ large so we didn't want didn't, we didn't want to use terms that had already been defined or used elsewhere hence the interesting
0: undermining the term. security Canada. that's
2: right but we wanted to capture the mandates of all of those institutions that participate in national security so that they could all be recipients for those parts of their mandate under this act
0: so the broader your definition of national security or undermining the security of Canada, then the more important the operative provision comes, right, in terms of when you can pull the trigger and, yes. the, and the safeguards that exist there. So uh, the the definition changes a bit, right, in C-59. It we, does, We can talk yeah. a little bit about that in a second. Yeah. Because there's also a carve-out, which I think was a bit muddled in C-51 because of the 11th hour amendments made in the, in the uh, I believe it was the Commons, about uh, protest and artistic expression and the like. Those are those are exempted from the definition of, of national security or undermining the security of Canada. But the way it was actually crafted by the time it got into law was such that the exemption almost swallowed the definition Mm -hmm. because it wasn't you know it was like any kind of protest well what if it's a violent protest right and so so it became a very perplexing kind of circular snake-eating-its-tail sort of definition but before we get to how c 9 cleans that up um, there's also the operative provision in section 5 which Mm -hmm. talks about providing information to a recipient institution when it lies within their jurisdiction essentially a mandate based assessment yes Uh, who's making that call
2: that's the tricky part, yeah. I would say, of of SCISA. It is the disclosing institution, and so they're not experts in another institution's mandate. So they have to be educated a little bit. Hence the notion of dialogue that we introduced in the Act. So and wait, uh, by, by the Act, you mean C fifty nine or C fifty one? It was introduced in C fifty one. Right. That that part where a dialogue between the two institutions is highly encouraged. You know, we uh, disclosure doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not an artificial. Exercise. So if you're not sure, why not call the recipient and say, I'm not sure about your mandate. Does that make sense to you? Mm. Yes, it does, but we don't need all of this. You know, have a bit of a, a discussion. Of course um, the discussion
0: itself amounts to disclosure. It, it
2: does. You have to be very careful. <laughs> right. Very careful. So that sounds kind of complex. Like, yes.
0: It, so it can be. You know, we uh, have
1: this thing you might be interested that's
0: right. in. Yeah. We've got we have this stuff
1: yeah. and yeah. So
0: CRA phones up CSIS and we have something that's right. that lies within our mandate. That might be of interest to your mandate. It's like, well, yeah, we know it's tax information, right? So, you know, that's going to be, and and would it be within your mandate? Well, I don't know. Who's it about? Well, it's about this guy we think might be a terrorist. How do you know he's a terrorist? So that that would amount
2: to a disclosure. Um, (laughs) So I think you would withhold names, right? Right. Personal information. You would sort of describe the situation. But it is sort of adding a a burden on the disclosing institution to to become a bit of an expert Mm. in national security mandates. So for that, we provide all of our institutions with, A guidebook to help them apply this act and and, and a training package and of course we focus on the institutions that are most likely to have information to disclose but yes it is on the disclosing institution.
0: And another issue that came up uh, during the C51 debates and this came out of the Privacy Commissioner's office was the threshold for deciding Mm. when so not just was it within your jurisdiction but did you really need it and so there was this discussion about about a necessity threshold Mm. is it necessary to serve that purpose, that you share it. Uh, necessity being kind of state of the art, uh, as I understand it, in the privacy world is to the, the justification for, for sharing. And that necessity language doesn't really come up in C51. That's right. But then we get s- a bit of an echo of it in C59. So maybe we'll hold that thought. Yep. You now, Stephanie, I think you wanted to ask a question about how the current SCISA has has worked.
1: Yeah. You know, in my research, I've come across uh, some of the criticism by the Office of the Privacy Commissioner, who wrote a report on how it was working in 2017. And they noted significant procedural deficiencies in the way the act actually works, as well as no formal overarching reporting structure in place to capture the exchange of information. Uh, so those were, were kind of two of the criticisms of. of how SCISA was actually working, and so I was wondering. I mean, I know it's it's always fun to talk about criticism from another <laughs> um, government agency, but um, can you speak to any of those concerns?
2: Yes, and I have to say that the Office of the Privacy Commissioner was quite thorough in their review. They they went about it in a very systematic way, and they came out with I think a report per institution. So we got a 360 view, I would say, of the issues, and you know. That was quite useful to us. It, it might be painful to be reviewed when you're going through it, but after that, you have a, a pretty objective point of view on how things are working. And public safety doesn't always have eyes on how things are working because we come up with policy, we put it out there in law, and then it's for other organizations to use, and we're not privy to the information being disclosed and, and collected.
1: So it could be by like two institutions, for example, that have nothing to do with public safety. That's right. You wouldn't
2: even necessarily see how it's being done. That's right. And there's no obligation to notify us or report us.
0: So GAC and RCMP or something like that. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And so what we took from those recommendations is that, number one, we, we needed to have a stricter reporting requirement where the reporting requirements... For the disclosing institution mirrored those of the recipient. I think that's one of the points of the uh, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner that they would go into one institution and they would have a, a beautiful record of the disclosure, but then they'd go into the recipient institution and a they would f- a black hole or inaccuracies or a uh, bunch of them were considered one reception of information as opposed to multiple. So there was no matching between the records, which was, was not helpful to them. The other thing too is that any time you introduce something new, there will be growing pains. Obviously, information sharing was such a black hole for for a long time in the federal government and all of a sudden um to sort of have 17 or even more than 17 institutions try to do everything in the same way keep mm-hmm. records and and assess a threshold uh in exactly the same manner is is quite challenging so we have we have learned from that and you can tell that um in c59 we have introduced some amendments to. Uh, to um, make reporting mandatory. So
0: there's a beefed up section nine of, in the C-59 framework. So this is the bill that's currently before Senate that, mm-hmm. that enhances reporting requirements and also then bakes in a, a supplemental sort of reporting requirement to the, the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, the that's NCira, right. That's right. once it stood up. Yes. And so there's more checks and balances, in other words, Yes. A, in the new framework.
2: The NSIRA will collect all of that. They will have a record of every single disclosure. And can can then opinion about that and put it in their annual report
0: right so they better be well resourced yes for a lot yes. of reasons Yep. okay
2: right <laughs> so
0: so other changes in c59 so think standout changes so the two things we've talked about so far there's some cosmetic what I consider cosmetic mm. changes there's a, a clarification about what I was really bothered me one of the things that bothered me was a circularity in relation to the Privacy Act Yes. it wasn't clear whether the Privacy Act would trump the schizo or not and I think the assumption was it would but the the drafting was unclear there's a for greater Certainty provision now that makes it abundantly clear that the in the event of of conflict that the 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 Skida now because it'll be now the Security of Canada Information Disclosure Act so there's a name change. Will prevail okay so but the, I'm just
1: gonna can I just make a suggestion maybe mm. in the future to use better acronyms <laughs> yeah you don't want that <laughs> just, it's hard to get so them to work in English and French <laughs> right yeah. Yeah, yeah Anyways, fair enough
0: um, so the two op two provisions that that do change that have a material impact would be the definition mm-hmm. uh, and so the definition of undermining the security of Canada and then also the operative provision section 5 which we talked about right yes so how does the definition change of undermining the security of Canada it's a shorter list
2: Yes, so um. I, so this is a bit of a technical change. Right, I can go through it as best I can. The technical change in the definition was that under SCISA, so C-51, we had sort of a chapeau, right? Activity that undermines security of Canada means an activity, and we talk about undermining the sovereignty, security, or territorial integrity of Canada and the lives of security. Which of is really people. broad. Yeah, which, which,
1: is is the broad. Ba- which is the baseline, but by chapeau, you mean like kind of the, the broad framework upon which everything else depends.
2: Yes, exactly, and then we had a list. But, but, but it was
0: an illustrative list. It
2: was an illustrative list, yeah. and not everything in the list was in and of itself necessarily national security. It also needed to meet the test of the chapeau. So it was a
0: double trigger. You had to yeah. meet the standards in the chapeau, That's albeit right. quite broad standards, uh, and not just the language that was in each of the enumerated items.
2: That's right. Okay. And so in the new definition, what we've done is we t- we've tightened up our list, uh, because I think there was a lot of commentary on some of the items in the list right. being open to interpretation, if I can put it that way. And so now I would say the chapeau is very similar, but we have a non-exhaustive list again of examples. But if you meet one of the examples, you've automatically met the definition.
0: Right. So the wording in the enumerated list becomes more important because if you meet that wording alone, you're off to the races. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, one example is conduct that takes place in Canada and that undermines the security of another state. Yes. So if you meet that threshold, that alone is enough to open the door Thereafter, to the sort of information disclosure slash sharing we've been talking about. Yes. So you raise the question of interpretation. Well, so something that takes place in Canada that undermines the security of another state, any state, not just a democratic state, but any state, you know, whose view is really going to prevail there? If, if uh, the Turkish government takes the view that a protest in front of the Turkish embassy is somehow undermining its security, which wouldn't be too surprising for the current Turkish government, Is that enough to open the gate or is it in the hands essentially of the government officials in Canada to decide whether that threshold is met?
2: It is absolutely in the hands of the government officials. Right. As you may guess, we get representations all the time from from foreign countries and a variety of fori, but we are a sovereign country and we will make up our minds (laughs) in the application of our own laws, what constitutes a national security threat or not. But we, we felt it necessary to put that in the list because the word of the word national and national security often, you know, if you took a strict interpretation of it, could limit itself to Canada. And we fundamentally believe that the, the security of another country, especially if there's a Canadian nexus or somebody's plotting mm. something from Canada to harm another country, should be a matter of
0: national security. Right, because secu- we have also, allied relations. And exactly.
1: And yeah, but, and also, you know, a lot of times national security threats don't necessarily originate in Canada. Right
0: right so so by taking that definition of undermining and and making the front bit the what we call the chapeau less important in relation to the enumerated list perhaps it's, maybe it's a little bit broader I mean I take the view it's a little bit broader which means that, that we become a lot more concerned about what you've did you've done with section five right and so on section five which is the operative provision uh, you've added some language and so how, how is that different
2: so section so section five so and I I, I think I disagree with you that it's a little <laughs> bit broader I think it's it's the language is tighter, but we try to maintain the scope. Okay, as is. All right. Is that fair? Uh,
0: we won't try to argue that on <laughs> yeah. a podcast. too. <laughs> Come
2: on, we can go for another like, forty-five minutes. Let's. All
0: right. So, but 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 five does change, right? And it changes in important ways.
2: It does. Five uh, is significantly improved. Uh, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's the result of a dialogue that occurred during 51, after 51, when 59 was introduced, we had a lot of stakeholder representations and we we absolutely listened. I mean, we had people come over and give us their views. And so we got a lot from those exchanges, including with the Office of the Privacy Commissioner. And as such, we proposed the following modifications. Instead of using the word or the concept of relevance, to an institution's mandate. Right. We so this went, goes to
0: this question of necessity versus relevance, which is yeah. we talked about a few minutes ago. Yeah. yeah.
2: We we chose the words contributes to. And which in our opinion, even if you just look at a dictionary definition, raises the bar a little bit, right? There there needs to be an active contribution to a mandate as opposed to maybe a more passive
0: link. All right. So it moves it has to move the ball down the field. Yes. All right. No, rather than you know potentially being of some interest to you because of what you do.
2: Exactly. All right. That's okay. right. The second improvement is that we've introduced a proportionality requirement, mm. which essentially states that you should not affect any person's privacy more than is reasonably necessary.
0: So it's a little bit of that necessity language the Privacy yes. Commissioner liked.
2: That's right. Okay. So that's one place where necessity appears. and. That might be a bit of an extra step there for the disclosing institution. They're going to have to sit down and think about it, and this is frankly to prevent just the reflex to just give over everything.
0: Right, right? a data dump.
2: A data dump, right, which was a rare. Right. Or just more than you should or disclosure without actually applying your brain and analyzing what you're doing. So, So for example,
0: causality element that's required. Yeah. So,
2: you know, you find out that maybe one person is is of interest to another agency. Um, well, you wouldn't necessarily want to disclose everything you have on that person's family members right. Here's at the their same time.
0: vaccination record. Uh, yeah. Right. So that could be relevant, but it's not necessarily necessary.
2: <laughs> right. And nothing precludes you from reapplying the act. Mm. You know, if you disclose a little bit and the other institution says, oh, actually, this is of great interest to us. And, you know, if you have anything on that, that would contribute to our mandate as well. You c- You can have multiple instances of disclosure. So, but it does add a step right in the in the in the process. Then we've added an obligation on the recipient. Ah, and and
0: this came in the Commons, right? It came after the privacy did. commissioner in the Commons said, I want a double lock.
2: Yes. Right. And so he introduced this notion of necessity. But uh, the dialogue was, do you include it? Uh, do you impose it on the disclosing institution? Or do you do you impose it on the recipient institution? Or both. Or both. Right. So we did the proportionality for the disclosing institution and we it's sort of buried to be fair, uh, under
0: 5.1, right? Yeah. <laughs> so for everyone reading on home, <laughs> we're not talking about 5.1.
2: Yeah, where we talk about requirement to destroy or return. So that's where mm-hmm. that's where it's buried. But we do say you must essentially destroy or return any personal information that is not necessary for your mandate, okay. for you to carry your mandate, and that introduces a, I think, a fairly clear threshold of necessity for the recipient. And we we were of the opinion that necessity belonged with the recipient for the the very simple reason that they are the experts ultimately Mm -hmm. in their own operations and their own mandates, and they can better assess necessity than the disclosing institution can.
0: So hence the double lock, because you have two agencies, the sender and the receiver, who Mm -hmm. both have to apply their mind to this issue and decide whether this information really needs to flow. Uh, And and that mitigates the risk of this data dump that we we were talking about a moment ago. Uh, there's also then this, uh, this this kind of puzzling reference to CISA that this yes. double lock doesn't apply to CSIS in relation to information that falls within CSIS as a security intelligence mandate. Let me let me speculate as to why that is, and you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong. Right. That the necessity standard is actually less less strict than the current standard on CISA for retention in section 12 of the CISA Act. Uh, yeah. In, in CISA Act, it says retention where strictly necessary, That's right. which is a higher bar than mere necessity. And so you didn't want to relax the standard, indirectly relax the standard on CSIS through the SCIDA.
2: Or even worse, uh, impose two different thresholds because, on the same because institution. Because uncertainty
0: its great in national security law. we were really big fans of uncertainty on right. this podcast. That's
2: right. That's right. But I mean, it would have been quite confusing for CSIS to, to say, because I, mean, I, I don't think it would have done away necessarily with their own... Uh, collection thresholds, mm. uh, but so then how do you apply both? How, do, how does it work together? Right. So
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that so that makes a lot of sense.
1: You
2: know, for for the layperson who's listening and, mm. and God help you
1: if you made it this far,
0: because <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you,
1: but I guess it's it's really can you maybe just explain in very basic terms? What is the major differences uh, in how this new regime is going to work?
2: I think the basic principles behind the act are the same. The use of the act is the same and we are hoping that federal institutions, because it's been on the books now for a little t- little while and, you know, granted there was a little bit of uncertainty because of C-59. Will this, you know, will, will the act stand? Will it not? Should I put all my eggs in his basket? Etc. We're hoping that if this bill passes, it will give some comfort and certainty to institutions so they can sort of make SCEEDA part of their regular toolkits and feel a little bit more confident in using it. So, but, so, but I think the purpose is the same, the features are the same. What, what will change are two things. The way that information is disclosed, so that the threshold or the test for disclosure as just described now has a couple of different steps and one pretty strict test for proportionality for uh, you know information relating to a person and one pretty stringent test for necessity. And so we think that it accomplishes the same policy objectives of allowing institutions to disclose for national security reasons but it boosts the privacy protection even more and makes it just a little bit more precise in what you can disclose or not.
0: Plus the accounting requirements and the
2: and the and that's the that's the number two is the record keeping. So we're hoping that there's clarity when a review body goes in or the Office of the Privacy Commissioner goes back in that they can see exactly what's occurred in the last year because the record keeping was on point and precise and, and consistent and, and consistent. Right. Exactly. Okay.
0: Yeah and you know this is a highly technical issue the question of information sharing and when I teach national security law sometimes my students eyes glaze over because I spend a fair amount of time on this but I think it's really the bread well, it's, it's, in it's the a heart bread and of butter, everything right, right? what's it's- the use of information if it's pooled in one agency and isn't shared in another agency and and, and yet the it's one of these hard dilemmas right you at, at some at some level you want information to flow in the right way to the right people but you don't want this to be the Stasi accumulating huge files on people in some databank somewhere. And so the privacy issues have to be reconciled with the efficacy issues and it, r- it remains a very interesting policy dilemma and then an extremely difficult statutory development and uh, articulation and drafting exercise.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, It's funny because like the analogies that people use in this space are often breaking down silos mm-hmm. or g- creating giant vats or pools of information that you can then go dip in. Mm-hmm. And really I don't think either of those are, are really good Analogies. I think what you're looking at is building like kind of bridges between silos that are heavily regulated yes. and where you can understand where those bridges are and how they're being used. And that's really the task at hand. Right.
2: Yeah, that's right.
0: Great. Well, so maybe we could spend just the last few minutes talking a little bit, Sophie, about about your career, because mm-hmm. uh, uh, you started in law. I did. And you moved into policy and you yeah, came I to did. my class in, in January. And it was great talk about about sort of how one develops a career starting off in law and government and then moving into policy and the sort of different uh, exposure you've had. Do you want to say a few words about how you started off in government?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I will just start by saying that it's funny how even if you've plotted your career in your mind when you're just out of university, it just never happens the way you thought. And that's probably for the for the better. But uh, when I was in law school, I was pretty pretty set on working for a government. I just didn't know which one. I was I was hoping for the federal government in Ottawa, but I would have been happy working for any government um, because what I really, really enjoy is the the policy debate behind legislation. I think it's a little bit like literature, right? If you if you're studying a book, you want to hear about historical context and maybe a little bit of anthropology and and social studies and that era of the book and that type of thing and it's the same thing between policy and law law is an instrument it is a an art you know you know whatever you want to consider it but it is fundamentally a tool Um, so how do you shape it how do you shape your statutes how do you interpret your common law it should all be based in facts and and decision making and that's that's where policy comes in it's a bit of a foreign concept i would say to people who don't work in governments and i spend considerable amounts of time explaining my job to my friends and family when I'm not at work. But policy essentially is studying context and facts and what stakeholders will think and how you want to address specific gaps and what are your options and what are the pros and cons, then making a recommendation for decision makers. And that's extremely rewarding. So I definitely wanted to land in a government. I was very fortunate in that I got an articling position with the Department of Justice in Ottawa. It was my dream come true, I won't lie. <laughs> I was very, very pleased. And I did most of my rotations in criminal law and uh, one, one of them was at public safety. I've always been a bit of a, a reader of spy stories and Cold War books so that that worked for me and i also wrote uh, my major paper in law school on section eight and and
0: section 8 of the charter of the
2: charter That's and so privacy protection so right. section eight's a good friend of the podcast right. which is about
1: <laughs> so, search and what constitutes
2: yeah. a reasonable search we're gonna have
0: to talk about the mills case at some point oh boy <laughs> yeah. maybe we can get enough people on the podcast that we can understand it
2: um so i landed at the department of justice and had a great 11-year run with the department mainly at public safety legal services working on variety of files, including law enforcement, border, lots of border files, and national security. And in working with my national security clients, of course, you develop, well, an expertise and a pretty strong relationship and, you know, trust. And I guess I was a bit of a fixture.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you decided to jump the fence.
2: Yeah, and I was was invited to jump the fence, and that was uh, a big decision for me, leaving an area where well, where you where you're studied, but but also uh, for which you're professionally accredited and mm. it's part of your identity. I mean, most lawyers will will admit that and leaving it behind. Uh, maybe not forever. You never know, but policy has been quite good to me. So and, probably the, and those forever. legal
0: skills, are they transferable?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I think it depends where you go. I, I think you if you were to go into maybe programs, administration, government, it would be less, but definitely in operations because yeah. you're interpreting the laws and regulations and rules and all that. But also in policy, because as I like to tell a lot of my lawyer friends who who sort of snicker now that that I am in policy, uh, you know, I tell them, well, I get to decide what's behind the laws that you now have to right. apply. So On other hand, who, w- who wins? You who must, wins here? <laughs> you must
0: have to caution yourself against giving yourself your own legal advice.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. So my my departmental legal service unit watched me leave with a little bit of trepidation <laughs> saying, oh, God, what's going to happen here? But I've been I've been very good, I think, very disciplined as much as I can anyways, in not providing my own legal advice, we we do refer to legal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thanks very much for coming in today. Yeah. This is great. And, uh, and of course, we we all have to watch what's going on in the Senate now, and we'll see what uh, what the next few weeks will bring.
2: Yep, very exciting.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your uh, views on this legislation and a little bit about your career. My and, pleasure.
0: And Steph and I will be back in due course.
1: See you then.